everybody to Sunday worship. Glad to have you guys here. Glad to be here to worship with you guys. Everyone at home say what's up. Glad you guys are here as well, tuning in with us. I'm going to say a line, and you guys are going to repeat, and you guys are going to say the other line, okay? I'm going to say spread love, you guys are going to say not fear, okay? Very simple. Spread love, not fear. Spread love, not fear. All right, amen. Hey, guys, we are finishing up our series today on the wounded healers. There's been an eight-week series, but we're finishing up today. Uh, it'll be our last message on the wounded healers, and this series is... Like I said to you guys for a long time, it's, it's near and dear to my heart because it is a series that was designed to kind, to kind of move your heart to begin to imagine, to begin to think about, can I be somebody who can be used by God to minister, to serve, to bless, to care for another soul? It's a series that was designed by God to convict, to move, to, to, to draw out in your heart a willingness to say, yes, I can be a person who have been healed by God, now using this healing to bring healing to others, to minister and to care for other people. And this is our assignment. This is your assignment. If you call Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior, if you declare him as the one, your king, and he has an assignment for you. Last week we talked about that. We all have an assignment that God has given to us in whatever capacity he gives it to us in. But the assignment is very simple and it's the same. You are called to minister to others. You were not called to get rich or die trying. You were not called to retire young. You were not called just to have babies. You were not called to go on vacation. You are called to use your life in which he has purchased by his blood, which he has purchased by his son, to use your life in service of another. In whatever capacity he has given you to do that. And so we're going to finish our series here in the book of 2 Corinthians. You're going to open your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for, for us. Let me give you a quick background just to remind you of what we've been talking about or what this book is about what this letter is about. See, Paul was the founding pastor of the church in Corinth, the church that he is writing to, okay? And what Paul does is that he is a missionary, he's a church planter. He goes to a city that does not know God, that does not revere God, and what he does is that he brings the message of the gospel to that place, and he establishes leaders, he establishes people, he brings people to the saving knowledge of Jesus, and then he sets them up to go about and plant and, and to, to grow that church on their own. And so that's what Paul does. And as he, after he plants the church, he moves on to a different place to plant another church. And after a while, what he found out from this church was there was a lot of problems that came out of this church. This church was like the, like the Hollywood, the New York, uh, the big cities of today, right? This church had a lot of issues, issues like division, hierarchy, sexual immorality, and he writes them a letter and says, all of these issues that you're, right, that you're struggling, all these issues that you have, you have to correct them. You have to correct them. You cannot let them continue to fester and to infest your community. You have to correct these issues. And Paul thought, you know, I'm the founding pastor. Obviously, they're going to listen to me. But instead, they rejected Paul. They said, Paul, you're nobody. You're, you're an old, weak man. The way you speak, who you are, you have no authority, you have no power, you're not commanding, you're not a leader. 
Paul, and they reject Paul. And then what does Paul do? Paul's a gangster. He says, okay, well, I'm going to come back and talk to you face-to-face then. And he shows up. He gives them a personal visit, and he calls them out. And it was a painful visit because imagine him alone, and there's this whole church just railing on him. It was a painful visit for Paul. And then when he left them, he decided, I'm going to write them a letter. I'm going to write them a letter to tell them things that they do not know that I know. Only given by the Holy Spirit. He writes them this letter that literally when they read it, when they read it, it cut them so deep in the heart, they were filled, the Bible says, with sorrow and regret. I have no idea what he wrote. We don't have that letter, okay? We have no idea what he wrote. But all we knew is that it literally shook them. It changed them. It broke them. And they realized they're wrong before God. They realized their brokenness before God. They realized their degeneracy before God. And in their fear and in their doubt of being abandoned and lost, Paul writes them this letter that we see today that we're reading. And he writes them and he tells them, don't worry. You are still loved. You are still his. I still love you. I am still for you. Let me show you what it means to care for somebody. Let me show you what it means to minister to somebody. Let me show you what it means to give your life to somebody. This is where we find this letter, okay? Today's message that I want to share with you guys is very simple. Today's message is this, a wounded healer. A wounded healer's greatest gift to anybody. A wounded healer's greatest gift to anybody that they seek to serve, to love, to bless, to care for. It's not just time. It's not just energy. It's not money. A wounded healer's greatest gift that you can offer to another living being is the road to salvation. It is the one gift that is worth every other gift. It is beyond any other gift. A wounded healer's greatest gift is the road to salvation. And you're going to see how Paul shows them that in this, in this passage we're about to read. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 9. Let me, let me share with you. 8 to 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 9. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is the letter he was talking about, the one that we did not have, the one that broke them. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were not harmed, and, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. A wounded healer's greatest gift to anybody is the road to salvation, to show someone how to be saved. It's not to tell someone how to be saved. Not to tell someone they are saved, because you can't do that. You have no power in that. The only gift that you can give anybody is the road to salvation. And what Paul is saying here in verse 8 to 9, when I wrote you that letter, my first impulse, my desire was to do this. It was to convict you of your sin. 
It was to convict you of what you have done, not against me, but against God. The purpose of why I wrote that letter that seared your heart was because I desired for your heart to be convicted of the wrong. You see, the greatest lie and delusion that we have bought into in our age is what? That we are the center of it all. Isn't that right? That the world revolve around us, that we call the shots, that we do what we want to do. We, we declare what's right, we declare what's wrong. We declare what is justice, and we declare what's injustice. And we decide that if we want to move that goalpost of right and wrong, we will move it at our own whim because we are the center of it all. That is the greatest delusion of our age. That is the greatest delusion of our age. What power do you have? You are a mere dirt in the sand compared to the vastness of the universe. You are nothing compared to that. And yet you believe that somehow you are the center. The Bible says what? The Bible says, you, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that you, we, have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning there is nothing good in us. Even, let me tell you guys something. As a Christian, as a Christian, see, a Christian does not just say sorry to God for the bad things they do. You know what a Christian does? A Christian repents to God even for the good things they do. Do you know why? Because a Christian recognizes Recognizes that even the good things you do was motivated by a selfish gain somehow. See, a Christian recognized that even the good and the best things that we hope to achieve oftentimes is motivated by self-interest. The Bible said there is no one who is good. No one. See, if your evil can be unchecked, think about this, okay? Thought exercise. If what you desire in your mind can be unchecked, meaning they have no consequences, no punishment. No consequences, no punishment. You know that for a fact. Do you know what would happen? The evil that will pour forth from you would make the looting and burning that we see in our cities these past few months look like a day at Disneyland. If you were allowed to have the evil that's in you go unchecked, when you reckon that there can be no consequences, there's no consequences, what is possible in my life? And you say, you know what, PT, I think you're being, uh, I think you might be um, exaggerating this, right? Because I, I feel like I'm a pretty decent person. I, pre I feel like I can still do pretty good things. Let me just give you another thought exercise. Imagine we have a machine that can take every single one of your thoughts and turn them to actual pictures. And imagine we play. A thought, not just for a day. Let's just say, no, not even for your whole year. Just say for one day. Your own personal thoughts played for the world to see. Just one day. What would we see? Would we see the kindness that you talk about? Or would we see some deep, deep, deep issue there? Would we see, would we see the way you treat and think and feel and want to do to other people? What would we see? You would probably run if we had such a machine. You would probably hide in shame if we had such a machine. Do you know why? Because the Bible is true and it says that deep in the hearts of man, deep in the hearts of people is an issue 
that is called sin. It is a desire, that it, it is an evil that is lurking there, that has always been there, that if left unchecked, it will pour forth like the floodgates. Right? See, those thoughts that you have, do you guys know that why you even are able to control them? You know why? You know why? That you're able to like, yeah, I have these thoughts with you, but I don't act upon them. So why are you being all dramatic here, right? I have all these thoughts, but I don't act. The reason why you're even able to hold back those things is because of God's grace who has set up things in your life that keeps you from allowing those things to, put, to, to keep evil at bay. God's grace covers all men that keeps evil at bay, starting with your conscience, from your conscience to your family, who's meant to teach you that, from your family, right, to the world, to, to the government, to the country that you live in, right, and ultimately to the church. When all of these checks are there, evil is kept at bay. But when you redefine, restructure, destroy these things one by one, when you destroy your conscience, when you no longer feel numb to the things you do, when you feel numb now to the things you do, when, you, when you've broken the family unit up and decide, you know what, I will decide what a family looks like. When you destroy the one thing that keeps government in line or the law in line, when you begin to redefine the church, you know what ends up happening? Evil is set free. And we see it pour forth through all things. My point here is this. A wounded healer's greatest gift is to show someone the road to salvation and the the first journey on that road is to remind everyone that we are sinners in need of salvation. You guys ever watched the movie The Purge? Right? You guys seen the movie The Purge? I've never seen it, but like, I've seen like parts of it. You know, the movie is, is scary not because of the gratuitous violence. And there is a lot, okay? The movie is scary simply because of its concept. And the concept is this. One day a year, to keep peace for the other 364, one day a year, you are allowed to do anything you want, and you will not be judged, condemned, or put in jail for it. You can do anything your heart desires one day a year. What would you do? And that is the premise of the purge. And the movie is, again, it's scary, not because of the actual violence and the craziness. It's scary because of the concept, because the reality is if we are allowed to let the evil in us go unchecked, even for a moment, the things that will pour out of you, the things that you would do, the hurt that you would create, you know it. You know it. You know it in your mind. I'm, not, I'm telling you truth. Think about the people you've actually thought about hurting. Think about the vengeance you've wanted to inflict upon people based on what they've done to you. Think about the depraved things you want to do unto other people if given the chance, if you let your mind wander. And we say that what? Well, I'm not that bad, PT. I'm not too bad. I'm not like Pol Pot, I'm not like Mao, I'm not like Stalin, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not. Comparing yourself to other men is like comparing people in the dark. I'm, like, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not, I, you can't even see them. You're all in the same boat. But compared to who? Compared to a holy God, all your good deeds, all your worth, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. 
compared to bringing yourself into the light before a holy God who is immeasurable, who is unique, who is distinct, who is holy, the angels called. And you would see how utterly wicked you are. I'll tell you a story. I remember when my first time in Cambodia, I went to Cambodia, right? And, you know, Cambodia is not a very, you know, first world country. It is a very insect-infested country, you know? And I remember um, all our team got to uh, pick a, a place that they want to sleep in the rooms. And so two of our brothers decided to pick, like, the biggest room, right, in the nice open-air breeze. And first, first everyone was like, oh, man, that's kind of, we should pick that room first, you know? And so we thought we were kind of jealous of them, and then they turned off the lights. And we all went to sleep deep into, like, the inside of the, in, in the sanctuary. But they were, they were out there in a nice little open-air breeze room. And this is what happened. In the dark, they couldn't tell what's happening, but they heard. Heard something's going on, right? And after a while, they, they, start, they start feeling things falling on their faces. They're like, what's going on, right? And then the moment they turn on the light, when the moment when the light is revealed, because in the dark, you can't tell what's going on. You can't tell how bad things are. And the moment they flick the light, it was like a plague in the room. It was a swarm of termites all over the group. And they're dropping their wings one at a time. And these two brothers were just like filled. The whole blanket was just filled with these wings. And they're just flying around. And it was like some, some weird scene from some like, you know, um, uh, uh, scary devil movie or something, right? It was it's intense. It was intense. And they were like, they were saying, and we woke up and everyone who slept like in the hot rooms like, oh man, how'd you sleep? They're like, we didn't sleep, man. <laughs> we spent the whole night cleaning up, shooting off the butt. It was crazy because in the lights, in the light, everything is revealed. You see, you think, I'm not, I'm not that bad compared to other people. I'm not that bad compared to so-and-so. But compare yourself to God. Put yourself in a position to be compared to God, and you realize that in the light of God, there is nothing good in you. Right? And this is how you know. Check this out. Right? This is how you know. When you stand before God in the last days, when you stand before God in his throne judgment, he asks you, son, daughter, why, why shall I let you into my kingdom? And if the best thing you have to say to him is, God, I have done good my life. God, I have done all these things. I even done them in your name, Jesus. I even done them in, with your passion and your conviction. I even done them with the church's backing on me. God, I have done all these things for you. He will look at you and he will say, Away from me, I have never known you. All the good that you do are like filthy rags, the Bible says, before God. Because as the best that you can offer before a holy God, nothing. But if you, if you stand before God on that day and you look upon him and he asks you, why, my son, why, my daughter, why? And you say to him, Oh God, in sin I was conceived. In sin I was born. In sin I chose to live my life. In sin I have, I have lived my life. And if not by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ who gave me his righteousness, I will have nothing to offer to you, oh God. I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing but Jesus Christ, my Lord. And if he is not good enough, then I have nothing else. And he looks and he says, well done. Because you know your heart. 
and you know that there is nothing that you can do to bring you out of it. And Paul, the first thing he did as a healer to this church was he said, I am going to bring you to sorrow. I am going to bring you to real sorrow because you think somehow that you are great. You think somehow that you are perfect. You think somehow that you are just meandering through life and everything is going to be okay because somewhere down the line, somebody told you, God is love, I'm set to go. Before a holy God, we have sinned. And this is how you know. This is how you know you've been convicted of it. What does he say? In verse 8, he says, yet now I, in verse 9, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, not because you felt bad, not because you're grieving, not because you feel regret. I am happy because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were not harmed in any way by us. The way you know you've been convicted of your sin. And not just kind of be like, eh, all right, I'll just kind of go through it. The way you know you've been convicted of your sin is that you have godly sorrow. You have godly sorrow in your life. Not worldly sorrow. You know what worldly sorrow is? Worldly sorrow is, worldly guilt, worldly regret is this. I feel bad because I got caught. I feel bad because now people are thinking bad about me. I feel bad because now I... I put other people in a position to think lowly of me. I wonder what they're feeling about me. You begin to focus on your own personal ego. That's worldly sorrow. And it sounds, it looks good because you, it looks like you feel bad. It looks like you're crying. You could be crying, but the reason why you're doing it is not because you've offended a holy God. The reason why you feel sorrow is because now you're worried about what people are thinking about you. You're feeling sorrow because you got caught. But godly sorrow means this. Godly sorrow means you took with what God wanted as good for you. Oh, I'm sorry. It is the sorrow that you have because you have wounded God's heart. Godly sorrow is there is grief in your heart. There is regret. There is guilt in your heart. Not because of what it did to you, but because of what you know it did to God. Of what you did to God's heart. As you wound him by your actions. See, godly sorrow that wound God's heart is like you took what God wanted as good for your life. And you decided to pervert it in a way to suit your own fancy. You took the beauty of sex before marriage. Not because God just wants you to be a tool or to be like stiff and not have sex and enjoy pleasure. God created this institution, this, this, this beauty of sex, so that when two couples come together and promise to one another till death do us part, and you engage in sex, it is meant every single time that the pleasure, the joy of it, was to renew the promise you made to the other person. When the feelings of marriage begin to dissipate, sex comes along and is meant to renew that promise. But when we begin to take something that God has made beautiful and we pervert it, we wound the heart of God. Do you recognize that when you, when, when you engage? I'm not saying that you're not allowed to struggle with that. I'm not saying that those of you guys who have slept with your partner, that somehow you are done and it's over. But I'm saying, do you recognize that there is any grief in your heart for wounding God's heart? You wound his heart when you give yourself over to distraction. You know what distraction is? When you give yourself over 
to the focus of earthly ambition, when you give yourself over to the desire of saying, I'd rather focus on my work at this time. I need to make sure my education is good at this time. I need to make sure all these things are set at this time. God, when it's convenient for me, then I will restore my relationship with you. But at this time, would you take a back seat and let this be my God? When you have placed yourself in a situation where you have been distracted, you wound the heart of God. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize the distance that you have had with your God all these days, all these months during COVID? Do you recognize your distraction, whatever it is that you're doing, is a wound to the heart of God? When he seeks to build this relationship with you, to grow with you, to want you, to seek for your good, and all that you had focus on is your own personal ambition. Godly sorrow. This is how you know you've been convicted in your sin. That you have godly sorrow because you have wounded the heart of God, but also you have shamed God's name. That you, your heart is wounded because you recognize you have shamed the name of God. Sorrow begins to move in your heart, not because you shamed your name, not because you felt bad how people think about your name now. Your heart is broken because you recognize that the Gentiles blaspheme God's name because of you, the Bible says. You go and you boast that God loves you, and therefore you can do whatever you feel like it without a moment thinking twice of what it does to the name of God and how it represents his name to the world around you. You go and you do whatever you think you feel is good, great, and awesome so that, so that you can fulfill your own personal desire. Saying, it's okay. God loves me. It's okay. You know, I have, I have two boys, Seth and Enoch, okay? Let me tell you about Seth. I have no words for Enoch right now, right? Let me tell you about Seth, right? The one thing I love about Seth, right? Enoch, Enoch let me tell you about Enoch. Enoch, only thing he has going for him is that he's cute, right? That's his only survival mechanism. He's just, he's just, he's cute, right? But Seth, Seth, Seth has a sensitive heart. He has a sensitive heart to his mother and his dad's heart. It's weird, right? It's like, it's like I've never seen so, such a kid feel that remorseful before. I felt bad that, that, like, that he felt that remorseful. You know, I, I remember when he did something, right? When he did something, and it really hurt his mom. It really hurt his mom. And the first thing he did, it was, I was like, I was like oh, it's not too bad. It's whatever, right? Like, you know, haha, honey, he got you, you know, right? But the first thing he did was just, Tears were just coming off. You see it. First, you see, the, you see the, it's building, right? It's building. And then Trish is just quiet. And then the, the more quiet she became, the more he just like, mm, right? he knows she's wounded. And then tears start flowing down. And then he's like, Mommy, I'm a bad boy. I'm a bad, hurt you, Mommy. I'm a bad boy, right? And I'm like, oh, dang, honey, you messed up, right? Like, what did you do with my boy, right? Like, what did you say to him, you know? He has a sensitive heart. For his mother's heart. I hope that he has a sensitive heart towards God one day, right? Same way. But I'm asking you the same question. Do you have a sensitive heart towards your God's heart, towards your father's heart? 
that the thing you do, though he is silent to you, though you do not feel the punishment of it at this moment, do you recognize that the silence is not because he has approved of it, but the silence of it is because he is wounded by you? Is your heart sensitive enough to it to say, oh God, I have wronged you? I have wronged you. It does not matter what people think about me. It does not matter what people say about me. What matters is that my heart has wounded you, oh God. That's how you know there's a conviction of sin. That's how you know conviction of sin is real. Otherwise, you know what it is? Otherwise, you know what the Christianese thing to do is? Okay, God, I feel bad. I'm sorry. Okay. Moving on. That's it. It's like Enoch. You feel bad? Yes. Say sorry. Sorry. Walks away. Do you really feel sorry, bro? Like, I don't know if you really felt sorry, you know? I don't know. I'm confused. And I think sometimes God's like that too. Like, you said sorry, but are you? Do you even care? Did you even sat once to think about what it did? A wounded healer's greatest gift, guys, is to show someone the road of salvation. A wounded healer's great, and this is what Paul did. This church, let me tell you, man, this church wronged him so much. This church literally took his name, took his authority, and just ran it through the mud. But did he hate them? Did he wish ill upon them? Did he desire their punishment? Did he say, God, I'm done with them, judge them, right? Do your thing, Lord. No. What did, what did Paul do? Paul loved them. He loved them, and he knew that the greatest gift that he can possibly give them is the journey to salvation. And so he writes them a letter that broke their heart because it revealed in their hearts the evil that was there before God. But here's the second thing. Look at verse 9 and 10. Not only did it cause them conviction of sin, right? Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, if you only feel grief, or you feel bad because you got caught, if only you put out the emotion because now everyone looks bad about you, everyone thinks bad about you, and you're just like, oh, I feel so bad, I can't believe what I've done because I've hurt so-and-so because I made so-and-so think this way of me, now I feel like I'm low, I feel like I'm a nobody. That way of thinking, that type of sorrowfulness, that type of grief only leads to death. You know why? Because it only focuses on you. But Paul says godly sorrow brings conviction and repentance. Repentance. Grief is not repentance. It don't matter how many times you cry. I don't mean how, many, how big of a pool that you can cry into. That is not repentance. Feeling guilty, feeling regret is not repentance. Repentance is change. Repentance is change. It is the change of attitude. It is the change of behavior. It is the change of trajectory. 
You were going one way, and as the conviction of sin pours upon your heart, bringing you godly sorrow, you say, no longer, God, will I walk this way. I will change my behavior, my attitude, my walk with you, my trajectory. When conviction came, look at what happens in verse 7. I'm going to go back real fast. When he, when he wrote them this letter, this is what happened to their heart. This is how you know they've repented. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you have given him. He told us about your longing for me. They, they didn't want him before. He told me about your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. What Paul saw was what? The church has repented. They have changed. They weren't just giving lip service about change. They weren't just giving lip service about how bad they felt in their hearts. They said, we have changed. They wanted change, and they changed. See, there was a change in their life. This is how you know godly sorrow. How you know godly sorrow you feel is real. Because it leads you to repentance. It leads you to a conviction that today I have to change. That this cannot go on any further. That this cannot happen anymore. That this cannot be the way of my life going forward. There must be change in my life. There's an illustration that um, I, I got from a pastor. I love this. I'm going to use it. Right? The story goes like this. Let's say, let's, say, um, let's say I came to church. I was late. Let's say I just, I just showed the church right now. Everyone's like, what do we do? Who's going to preach the message? And I just ran up the stage and I say, God, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. This is what happened. I was driving, got a flat, decided to get out of the car, change the flat. I lost the nut, the lug nut. It fell off to the side of the freeway. I decided to run into the freeway to grab the lug nut. And as I ran there, boom, I got smashed by a semi. And that's why I am here and I am late. Right? And you would look at me and you would say, He's lost it. He's gone. He's a, he's a, he is a liar or he has completely lost it. Why? Because how can you get hit by something as big as a semi and not be changed? And in the same way, how can you encounter a holy God and not be changed? The way you know that conviction has moved in your heart, the way you know that godly sorrow is there is because you have encountered the Holy One. You have recognized your brokenness before Him, your lostness before Him, your defilement before Him, and you have said, God, change me. I cannot be the same way. It cannot be the same way here. Change me today. The gift of any wounded healer it's the road to salvation. The greatest gift you can give anyone as a healer is the road to salvation. Paul brought conviction of sin. And the conviction of sin brought repentance. Right? And lastly, check this out. Verse 10 through 11. This is what he says. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done? At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. 
Repentance leads to salvation because here you are, you at a place when you recognize I have sinned before a holy God. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. I have no power. Nothing that I can do is even worthy of him. What can I do? There must be change. And then Jesus Christ comes. Jesus Christ comes and he dies on the cross and he says, I know that you could not pay the cost. I know that you could not stand before my God. I know that you could not stand before the Father. I am here to take your place. I will bail you out. I will give you my standing. I will give you my position. I will give you my name so that when you stand before my Father, you stand as his son, just as I am his son. And I will take the punishment that was yours from me. Why, Jesus? Why would you do that? What have I done? Why am I worthy? You are not worthy. You are not worthy. But I do it because I love you. I do it because I love you. And I do not want to see you die. I do not want to see you lost. And I do not want to see you in hell. I do it because I love you. And I have made a way that was impossible before. I have made a way that is impossible before. I have made it for you. I brought you life. And in the midst of repentance, you cling on to Jesus. Salvation is you cling to Jesus because you know that if you would let go, you would die. You know that if you would let go, your life would end at that moment. And salvation is that you would cling to him and say, I have nothing else to help me but you. And if you are not here, I will die. I give you not just my words. I give you my life. I give you my actions. I give you my heart. I give you this breath until my last breath. And here's the thing. He says, I give you my life free of charge. But what if I mess up again, God? You're mine. Free of charge. What if I mess up again and again? Then repent again and again. And come back to me again and again. Because every time, you, once you are mine, there is no losing you. Once I have adopted you into my family, there is no losing you. Once you have called upon me, once you have dedicated your life to me, once you have given your heart to me, there is no losing you. And no matter how much you struggle, from here to your last breath, I will walk with you through every struggle. I will take your life and I will transform it at every struggle. I will take your journey and I will fight with you to overcome your battles through every struggle. I will be with you. In the ups and in the downs. I will not let you go because you are mine. You are mine, sealed in blood. Nothing will change that. And when you recognize that that's your love, how loved you are, when you recognize that's how much he, I'm telling you guys, if you call upon the name of Jesus Christ and he is your Lord and Savior, you may, you may still be messed up. But you will never stay messed up because he will never let you stay that way. You guys understand that? He will never let you stay that way because as conviction of sin comes, godly sorrow for what you have done for the name of God comes, repentance comes, and transformation comes. 
Transformation comes. The struggle is real. I know, church. I know that we battle through all these things. I know we battle through drugs, through sex, through pain. I know we battle through distraction. I know we battle through ambition, through pride. I know that the struggle is there. I know that the voice outside, it speaks volumes. It tells us, come with us. It woos us. It seduces us. It tells us, follow me and you will have life. And yet, God is saying, don't listen. Come back to me every time. Repent and repent and repent. And if we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness every single time. I tell you the truth, my buddy Min, he can't, he can't handle this, right? He can't handle this truth. He always says, so basically, right, he always teases me about it. He says, so basically, you can do whatever you want and just say I'm sorry and you're done. And I was like, mm, yeah, technically, that's, that's, that's the right, that's the words, those are the right words, but you're missing the big point, bro. Like, What's the big point? Because every time I do wrong, I seek to do right. Every time I do wrong, I seek to do right, not because I'm trying to get right myself. I seek to do right for the name of my God so that you, bro, would not blaspheme, so that I would not blaspheme his name in front of you anymore. And I tell him, you are a good man, man. You are a much better man than me, hands down. But I am not saved because I'm a good man. I'm saved only because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I have nothing to boast. And the salvation that grace is there, and you recognize that, there's joy, church. You see, this is how you know you've, you've been distracted. Because if you've repented... If, if, you, if, you, if you've come to Jesus Christ and you know that he saves you, and yet in your heart you're still gripped by shame, you're still gripped by guilt, you're still gripped by worry, it is a high chance, it is a high chance you have been lied to. It is a high chance that you do not understand the grace that has been given to you. Because Satan knows that if he cannot keep you from just being numb to your sin, if he can't, Satan knows that if he can't just keep you being distracted from your sin and recognizing your sin, you know what he will do? He will keep you, right? He will keep you from enjoying your forgiveness. If he can't keep you from being distracted in the numbness of your sin, he will keep you from being, enjoying your forgiveness. And you will daily think, I'm nothing. I'm unworthy. I am not good. I am a sinner before God. He should curse me. I don't deserve him. He doesn't deserve me. It's just, I'm just horrible before him. I need, he needs to just punish me now. I need to get better again and again if I want to get right before God. And God is saying, who has bewitched you? Who has lied to you? Who has told you these things? Read my words, and my words have said, if I have saved you, I have saved you. He who began a good work will finish it. Will finish it. So who has lied to you and told you that you were unworthy when I have made you worthy? Who told you that you were unrighteous when I have given you my righteousness? Look at the person next to you, right? And say, you are righteous in Jesus. You are, you are righteous in Jesus. Not because you're awesome, but because of who he is. It's because of who he is. You are forgiven, Jesus says. As far as the east is from the west, so shall your sin be from my eyes. And if this grace is abundant in you, 
if the revelation of this salvation is deep in you. Do you know what the result is? Check this out. Verse 11. He says this. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. It brings about transformation. See, if this grace is alive in you, you're not just going to sit there and take advantage of it and be like, yeah, God loves me. Sweet. I can do whatever I want. No. If you recognize that God loves you, you sit there and you say, God, this life I have was bought by your son. So, Lord, you tell me what you want me to do with this life, and I will give it to you. Every breath that I take from now until my last, it is yours in surrender to your kingdom and to your work. I pray this for you. I wish upon you what I wish upon my sons, that one day they will take the banner of Jesus Christ. My two boys, I I pray with all my heart that they will take the banner of Jesus and say, Daddy, I'm going to bring his name. I'm going to bring his name to a place that does not know his name, that does not revere his name, that does not worship his name. I will take it with every strength that I have by the grace of God himself leading me. And I will say, go. And if you die, I will bury you in that place. And I wish that upon you that your life will have an assignment, that it will have a purpose, that it will not seek to get rich or die trying, that it will not seek for the retirement of age, that it will not seek for the 401k plan, but it will not seek for the comfort of life, but it will seek for the assignment that God has given to you to go. And it will be like so many years ago when I lay next to my mom and I told her, Mom, I'm going to give myself to the work of Jesus. I'm not going to be a doctor anymore. <laughs> I'm ending the chain of death in our family. It stops today. I'm ending the chain of destruction, sin, and brokenness in our family. It ends today. Today, Mom, we're going to start a spiritual legacy that's going to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And she said, you're crazy. You're brainwashed. You're nuts. You're stupid. And I said, you can come with me. But whether you come or not, I'm not going back. We have one assignment. One assignment. That your life will bring forth God's kingdom to wherever you are placed. The greatest gift that you can give any being that you encounter, any human that you encounter, any brother, any sister, any friend that you encounter, the greatest gift that you can give them it's the road to salvation. And it starts with godly sorrow. Conviction of sin that has wounded the heart of God. That brings repentance. That brings salvation. That brings transformation. That brings revelation. That brings God's kingdom work to, this, to earth. So as we end this series, my prayer is that, oh church, would you be wounded healers? Would you be the vessel of God's greatest gift to the world around you. Let's pray.